Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Rock Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, birth order and climate science. In addition, we're joined by Professor Dan Everett, who will talk about the origins of language. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty excited, actually. As well you should be. I- yeah, I had an affair with Tiger Woods. <laughs> well, get in line, because who hasn't? I found out he was having an affair with you, so I chased him down the road with a golf club. And Yeah, bad driver. <laughs> but a great lover. I also hear he plays golf. The Tiger Woods news has reached as far as Japan, it seems. Gone global. Apparently, the controversy now is video coming out of Taiwan where they did a computer uh, reanimation of the whole incident. Totally based on hearsay. Computer-generated news. Pretty soon, you don't even know what's real. (laughs) I think the fake news is better than the real news. It's kind of like climate science. Fake data is better than real data, according to some of those guys in England. So, of, of course, the controversy you're referring to is the leaked emails from West Anglia University, right? Exactly. And the accusation, especially from the skeptics, is that the scientists had either misinterpreted or hidden some of their data in order to highlight the whole global warming process. Today I listened to uh, John Holdren's testimony. He's Obama's chief science advisor. And his remark is that, of course, there should be an investigation to see if anything's been misrepresented. But the reality is that the bulk of the science still remains intact. And the scientific consensus is years and years of debate over different ideas that could underlie the current climate change. And my feeling is that what we have left is basically the good stuff that has withstood scientific rigor. And so the reality is that when people are making discussions, there's going to be mistakes, there's going to be uncertainties. And over the years, there's going to be records of that. But that does not mean that the bulk of the science is wrong just because some private emails were exposed. Right. I think the problem is not so much that the science is not solid, but more the fact that it confuses the who thinks science is a simple and straightforward process without false starts and dead ends. Uh, as being sort of an right. inherently, inherently messy process. There's a book that came out by Steven Schneider who's talking about science as a contact sport. You mean it's not? I regularly engage in <laughs> battle axe wars with my fellow uh, neurobiologists. Tis merely a flesh wound. Always useful to know that the climate change data is solid, but perhaps a little bit warring. Hey, we're only human, right? <laughs> indeed, indeed. I wonder if the Tiger Woods incident would have happened if if he had some other siblings as well. Being a firstborn or only born makes you more of a philanderer. It certainly could. I mean, there's the typical stereotypes of the firstborn child as being less trustworthy and less cooperative than lower bone siblings. Wish that was true for me. (laughs) So was Tiger, right? Yeah, so you and Tiger have a lot in common. We're both Asians. (laughs) Uh, You both have multi-million dollar contracts with multinational companies. Mine's off by order of magnitude or two. (laughs) 
Well, but you are probably as trusting and as cooperative as Tiger being an only born child. Yeah, why not? Especially since you're a climate scientist, I have to trust you. It's about the science, man. <laughs> it is about the science. Interesting work done by evolutionary biologist Alexander Cortiol of the University of Montpellier in France. And they want to test whether the stereotype of firstborn children being less trusting and less cooperative than their younger siblings is true. And what they did is they did a very simple economic game that has been used quite a bit in which you have two players and one player has to send some amount of money to a second player that he does not see, trusting that the other person is going to send some money back to him. And that's the structure of the game. But what they found mm -hmm. is that firstborn children were, on average, sent about 25% less money than people who were born later in the birth order. And only children as well. So again, some objective measure of the stereotype, which is suggesting that uh, firstborn children are less trusting and less cooperative than their younger siblings. The reason why this might be is that being the firstborn child, as the, s the second child is now siphoning off resources from the parents. And so in order to get the same resources that he once was, he now has to compete for those resources and as a result is more competitive and less trusting of other people. Okay, so less iPhone apps to share then, huh? <laughs> So this is very fascinating work in a recent edition of Animal Behavior. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Professor Dan Everett will join us to discuss the origins of language. So stay tuned. to the Grox Science Show. Well, what are the origins of language? Does language derive from an innate mechanism within the human brain? Or rather, is language constructed from social and environmental constraints? What can a small indigenous tribe in the heart of the Amazon tell us about language? Well, joins today to discuss this issue is Professor Daniel Everett. Professor Everett is the Chair of Language, Literature, and Cultures at Illinois State University. He has spent more than seven years of his life living in jungle villages and has conducted field research every year since 1977. His book, Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes, details his experiences in the Amazon and his theory of language. And he joins today to talk about this very fascinating subject. Uh, Professor Everett, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it is a very fascinating uh, book about your experiences in Brazil and the Amazon. I I'm curious, what actually took you to Brazil? I originally went to Brazil as a missionary with the Wycliffe Bible Translators, and it was my job and my commitment to learn the Pitaha language to which I had been assigned to translate the uh, New Testament into their language. I see. So it was essentially a missionary uh, project. Yeah, I was a missionary for my first several years in Brazil. Oh, wow. And what uh, changed your interest from missionary work to a fascination with culture and their language? Well, a number of things. First of all, just the f absolutely fascinating, challenging culture and language that confronted me when I got there. It really piqued my interest in science, which had been growing since I was exposed to linguistics but also the quality of their lives and the happiness that they showed in their day-to-day -day existence and their 
interest in seeing evidence for assertions, their very strong empirical biases, led me to question my own faith and eventually abandon my faith, faith of any kind, and to uh, work with him as a friend and as a scientist. Oh, wow. What was it about that culture that forced you to question your faith? Well, there were several things. I mean, first of all, one of the reasons that missionaries go, in addition to trying to save people from the fires of damnation, is to give them a better quality of life, because it's believed that whatever religion you're pushing is going to make people's lives better, that it's going to make them happier in some way. So my first observation was that I didn't see how I could make these people any happier or any more content. In fact, they seemed much more content and happier than other people that I knew, even religious people. There was also the fact that they talk about the things that they know, and they talk about the things that they've witnessed. And when I would tell them about Jesus, and they would ask, how tall is Jesus? What does Jesus look like? Is he dark like us, or is he light like you? I mean, I would have to admit that I had never seen Jesus, and my father had never seen Jesus, and nobody that I knew had ever seen Jesus. And so they said, if you don't know anybody who's ever seen him, and you haven't seen him, why are you telling us about him? And that was a pretty good question. And their own happiness was derived independent of actually needing uh, some kind of force like that in their life. Yeah, they don't have a concept of a supreme being or a creator. They have no creation myths. They believe the world is always is as it always has been. They don't believe in uh, supernatural entities. They do believe that there are creatures like humans that they've seen that aren't quite like humans, but they're not really the same as spirits, although I often call them spirits. So they, they have no recognizable religion, no recognizable ritual, and this is, this is very challenging, very unique, and yet at the same time their day-to-day -day lives are filled with uh, each other and with enjoyment of uh, their bodies and of the world around them and just the daily tasks that they confront. Hmm. Would you say that their life is very much in the present? Yes. I mean, they can talk about the past, but it's only a past that they've seen. They can talk about their childhood. They can talk about what they plan to do tomorrow based on things they've done today and, and have been doing all along, but they wouldn't speculate about the distant future. They would never tell stories about the past before anyone currently alive was born. Uh, I mean, these are cultural taboos. These are, uh, well, not really taboos. They're just cultural values. They to live in the present and not dwell on the past. So, if you record stories among the Pitaha, they don't have any folk tales. Their stories are about things they've done, things they've seen. Every story, and I've collected hundreds and hundreds of stories over the last thirty years. How would you say that this is uh, manifesting their development? Do you think that it has kept a primitive type of tribe? Well, it depends on what you mean by primitive. I mean, most uses of the word primitive these days are pejorative. They mean that they're somehow inferior. But if you mean basic, just, just living basically, I mean, cognitively, they're just as well-developed as we are. They're, they're smart. They're, they're quite creative. But they're not interested in technology. They have a few tools, a few things they borrowed from outsiders, but compared to any other Amazonian group, it's almost nothing. They don't speak Portuguese. After over 300 years of contact with the outside world, they're very content with whom they are. In fact, they're somewhat ethnocentric. They believe, they call themselves, their name for themselves really is Hiaichehe, which means the straight ones. And, and any other person is an Awe, which is a bent one. And they call their language apaicheso, which means a crooked head, excuse me, a straight head. And all other languages are apagaiso, which is a crooked head. So they do believe that they've got it right. Hmm. And one of the interesting features of their language, you say, is that they don't have this embedded language. 
That's right. I mean, if you think about, we use embedding uh, fairly frequently in English, which is a property of recursion, which is the ability of one process to apply to its output. So in vision, you see recursion. So if you hold up a mirror to another mirror, you get this infinite regress of mirrors. That's visual recursion. If you hold a guitar up to an amplifier with a loud high note, the amplifier will amplify itself, amplifying itself, amplifying itself, so that you get auditory recursion. And recursion in language is putting one phrase inside of another phrase, so the house that Jack built, that Mary bought, that Bill saw. But the Peter Hot don't do anything like that. So one of the reasons we use recursion is to put more information into our sentences and to put clarifying bits of information. But the Pitahad don't need that because they're a society of intimates. Everybody knows everyone. We're a society of strangers. Most of the people that we see every day are people we've never met before that we don't know. Walk down the street and you see people you don't know. But to live in a society like the Pitahad means that everyone you ever see you know, and you know all about them. And so you don't need to infuse your speech with as much uh, new information and clarifying bits. The Pitahad can talk about these things, but they just don't need the same kinds of structures that we use. Mm. Is it because, uh, again, their environment is so much the same day after day that uh, they really don't need any kind of clarifying information? That's right. But, you know, there have been Pitaha kidnapped and raised outside the village and who still live in Brazilian communities. And when you meet them, they look like Pitaha, but they speak fluent Portuguese. They've been to math classes. I met one girl who had been taken away as a baby and raised out in the community and kept the store. She was very good at making change. I mean, there was n- there's no cognitive inability here. It's a cultural thing. So take a Pitaha away from their culture or raise a Brazilian baby among the Pitaha, and they'll be the same. Hmm. Is there an age-related uh, effect for this? Uh, oftentimes it's, it's presumed past a certain age, people have a much more difficult time learning a different language. That has a number of possible explanations itself, but the Pitaha children certainly are open to new things. The, the older people in the village say, we don't learn new things, our heads are harder. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's sort of like you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Mm-hmm. There is some truth to the fact that as you get older, you, it's more difficult to learn uh, new things like children because neuromicrocircuitry has been used up in the brain, but it, it's not clear what it reflects other than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, another interesting feature of their language is a bit of the fluidity of their terms. Well, they, they have... They, you know, they, their language has categories that more or less match up with our categories, but not exactly, you know, so that, so that words like color, for example, they don't have color words, but they clearly perceive color so that they express it differently when they see it. So if you see green, this green might strike you as, you might say it is a white it's not quite ripe. Another green might strike you as looking like the river, or it might strike you as looking like some animal. So they do describe colors differently, by and large. And so if you do color experiments and and ask each individual in the village to name the colors, they agree on a few things and disagree on others. But you can see a general pattern of perception of colors and basic colors among them that, that is a very interesting cognitive phenomenon because it shows that they have certain concepts in common with us about colors, yet they don't have the words for them, and their description varies frequently. Hmm. What is it about the, the Pura language that calls into question the more prevailing view of language as being constructed by innate programs already set up in the brain? 
Well, the biggest controversy has revolved around my reaction to a paper that was written by Mark Hauser of Harvard University, Tecumseh Fitch of the University of Vienna, and Noam Chomsky of MIT, in which they claimed that probably the only purely linguistic part of the human brain or the, the, the part of the, of the human faculty for language that was un- uniquely responsible for language was recursion. So there are a couple of issues here. First, if you can find a language that doesn't have recursion, that's a counterexample. It's not, it can't be called an exception. It's a counterexample to the fact that, and so if you lose recursion, since they themselves, Chomsky himself, has made that the key issue now, he's abandoned most of his other claims he's made over the years and focused on this. If that's gone, there's really nothing left of that innatist program. But the other problem for the idea of innate grammar is the idea that a culture could shape the grammar itself. We know, and Chomsky would certainly accept, for example, that grammar can be affected by the culture in which you're born. I mean, maybe you don't talk about certain things. I don't know if he would say grammar, but certainly language. You know, we don't have a word for, most Americans don't use the word haggis, which is common in Scotland for a kind of food that they have in Scotland that we don't normally eat here. So those kinds of cultural effects in language are trivial, and no one would disagree about those. But if something as fundamental as recursion, the very core architecture of the grammar, can be affected by culture, by cultural values that not only affect the language but affect other aspects of the culture, that's very difficult to reconcile with the idea that language is an innate organ that simply grows in the human with minor shaping by the environment. Was there evidence that languages that currently exist sort of fit a general pattern or mold for a universal grammar? Well, there's a new article out that came out in Brain and Behavioral Sciences that's been commented on by a lot of people, and I think it's a very interesting article. And it's by Nicholas Evans of the Australian National University and Stephen Levinson of the Max Planck Institute for Psycholinguistics in Nijmegen. And the title of the paper is The Myth of Language Universals. And, and they basically take apart the idea that there's any universal to human language. There are some basic patterns, but you don't really need to appeal to innateism to explain if you find these patterns. I mean, so for example, imagine that language was invented by a tribe in Africa a couple of hundred thousand years ago, and that people, as they traveled throughout the world, took this language with them and changed it over time. That alone could explain most of the similarities we see. You know, the the fundamental universal of human language that the innatists never deal with, and very few people deal with it really, is why do human beings want to talk to each other in the first place? We're the only primates that care about cooperation or communication as a vital part of our society. No other primate, not baboons, not chimps, gorillas, no other primate in the wild is interested in that kind of cooperation and communication. What is it about humans that leads us to want that? Well, whatever it is, it's facilitated by language. And if you develop language, you develop the ability to survive more effectively in a society, uh, in in an environment in which cooperation and communication are favored. It's sort of like the bow and arrow. Every culture has a bow and arrow, probably, and these days almost every culture has pizzas. But no one would want to suppose that there's any need to appeal to innate mechanism. Bows and arrows solve problems, and language solves problems. It's a very complex problem solver, but 
on the one hand, let me say that there has to be something innate about language because only humans learn it. But I think that what's innate about language is the human brain, its quality, and its problem-solving capability. And there's not really the need, as far as I can see, to appeal to anything more specific than that. Mm. So a specific kind of language grammar built into the brain, not so much. Right, right. I mean, for example, if you wanted to make the case that grammar was unique and it was innate, then you would need to show that it couldn't be learned without being innate, right? Because if you can show that people could learn it without it being innate, there would be no reason to say that it is part of the genome. And so to show that it can't be learned, you'd have to show that it's arbitrary in some way. But we, what we know about language shows that it's not arbitrary and that meanings and forms and these things can readily be learned from the environment. So I haven't seen anything that linguists universally agree upon that could only be explained by being innate. Not the order of acquisition, not the speed of acquisition, not the things that are learned, not the final states of languages. It's a mystery. I mean, it was a good idea. It was a very good idea to propose that languages... I mean, I was enamored with the idea when I, at the beginning stages of my career. It's just that after uh, 50 years of this idea, it just hasn't panned out. It hasn't produced much. Mm. Would, would you say uh, language, then, is just a means of mapping the world into some sort of linguistical form? Uh, yeah, I have, a, I have a new book that's appearing next year called Cognitive Fire, Language as a Cultural Tool, in which mm -hmm. I talk about the problems that language has to solve. There, there are two basic problems language has to solve. The first problem is getting nonlinear thoughts into a linear order. I mean, if you just took your brain and projected what's on your brain right now up onto a screen, there'd be some coherence, but very little that others could perceive. It'd just be a random list of images. It's what uh, William James called stream of consciousness or the blooming confusion of consciousness. But language helps us to put these thoughts in some sort of focused linear order so that we can communicate them and think them more effectively. With language, we think more effectively. The other problem that language solves is the communication problem. We've got to get an idea from my brain to your brain. We've got to have a physical way of instantiating that, whether it's hand gestures or consonants and vowels or electrons coming across a telephone line. So the, the language has to have certain properties all along to solve the communication problem. And if, if we can figure out what all those properties are, and they're just part of the problem and the solution to the problem, they don't need to be innate at all. Hmm. Do you think this sort of idea is now beginning to trickle into the mainstream linguistic field, or is there still quite a bit of resistance to it? Well, there are two answers to that question. And the first, the rejection of a universal grammar is totally apart from my work, a very widespread view among many, many people these days. I mean, researchers in psychology, anthropology, linguistics, and philosophy have been finding more and more reason to reject the idea of a language instinct or an innate universal grammar. Uh, they haven't written any popular books that have captured the public imagination, but they have certainly, in scientific literature, given lots of evidence against this. As far as the Pitahago, yes, I think that more and more people are taking this seriously. A number of researchers have been to the Pitaha with me. Papers have come out on these different aspects of the Pitaha culture and different claims I've made. 
there, there are many people who are testing these claims. And then they're looking at other languages. And in fact, I'm just now reading a paper on recursion by Jeffrey Pullum and Barbara Schultz, who are both at the University of Edinburgh, in which they discuss the whole problem here. And they look at other languages and say that while Pitaha might be the most well-known case, these other cases that they're looking at suggest that they might be identical. Hmm. So plenty of counterexamples to the prevailing idea. Yep. Uh, we are only slightly out of time. I just want to close uh, some of the ideas here in uh, Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes. Well, Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes simply tells the story of my life among the Pitaha and all the things that this wonderful group of human beings has taught me over the years. It points to the need for us to try to help cultures and languages survive around the world because of the rich, unique lessons that each has to teach us. And it also has a lot about linguistics and about religion and about a lot of lessons that we can learn from people quite unlike ourselves. Mm, it's a very fascinating book. It is called Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes. And Professor uh, Everett, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you very much for having me. And you were just listening to Professor Dan Everett discussing the origins of language. This is the Grok's Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes is the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. I tell you how I feel, but you don't care. I say tell me the truth, but you don't dare. You say love is a hell you cannot bear. And I say give me my back and then go there for all I care. I got my feet on the ground and I don't go to sleep to dream. You got your head in the clouds, you're not at all what you seem. This mind, this body, and this voice cannot be stifled by your deviant ways. So don't forget what I'm told, you don't come around, I got my own hell to raise. All right, it's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic informative or hot air. So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think their speech is uh, informative or just a bunch of hot air and maybe a little reason why. Professor Everett, are you ready to play the game? Yes. All right, here we go. Informative or hot air, Donald Trump. Uh, well, I suppose that there's a lot of what he says that's informative, but I certainly don't see it on TV. Okay. <laughs> uh, number two is Apple CEO Steve Jobs. I think that CEOs are very careful to present information, but to stay clear of bad information. So, uh, again, it's, it's going to be a strong mix of new information about products and no information at all glossing over problems. Mm. Number three is the famed evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins. Some of his books are full of information. I, I find other books and other interviews he gives uh, to be fairly uh, superficial and therefore less information rich. And uh, number four is quarterback Brett Favre. Uh, I've never heard any information come out of the mouth of a professional athlete. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, finally, number five, it's the uh, president of the United States, Barack Obama. Uh, well, I, I love Barack Obama, but he gave a lot more information before the election. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, Professor Everett, I want to thank you for sticking around, playing the game. And, and of course, again, talking about your, your book, which is called Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. 
All right, and uh, now it's time for this week's question of the week, and coming to us straight from uh, Dagobah, it's our good friend, Jedi Master Yoda. Yoda, how are you doing? Mmm, think you're looking good at this Kentucky Fried Chicken I must eat. Mmm, strong the force flows from it to me, does it? Mmm, good food, good food. Well, it is the tastiest thing that they have there on Dagobah, but I hear on Dagobah you also have a lot of snakes. Mm, indeed correct you are. Mm, and more powerful snakes they are, loose limbs they have, and slither through Dagobah they do. Capture them. Mm, I cannot. What is the deal with that? I mean, they have no legs. Escape from everything they do. In darkness they go. Mm. Wow, fascinating, Yoda. Mm, good food, good food. Thanks a lot, Yoda. And that's all for this week's edition of Grok Science. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Grok Science, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.